So this is the third full day of retreat that we've had together. And I want to continue the discussion or the investigation that Anushka began when she was pointing to the investigative factor of mind. She didn't say it so much explicitly, but she in, implicitly she was pointing us at what's called the investigative factor. There are many different um, uh, factors of mind that go into awakening. Mindfulness is key, is one of the primary factors. Right next to mindfulness is investigation. And Anushka was encouraging us to sit with our experience and then see, well, what is it? What's it like? What's it feel like? What's the body like? What happens as we sit with it? Does it change? Does it stay the same? Was woven through how she was talking about how to practice and how to be mindful. And so we began by being mindful and and encouraging this investigative mindfulness. A kind of um, investigation that's not so much uh, thinking about but feeling into, sensing into, being aware of what's happening and then seeing what happens to what we're aware of. How does it show itself? How does it change? How does it stay the same? What happens to it? And then Pam uh, last night emphasized a number of different qualities of heart and mind, um, uh, especially the idea of respect, of a respectful attention, a respectful awareness, a certain um, attitude that we begin to weave into the uh, way that we pay attention, the way that we're being aware of our experience. And that respect is, could be, one way we could think about it is it's a, it's a shorthand for saying, oh, we're actually being respectful, we're being kind. There's a kind of loving kindness that's inherent in the actual way we pay attention. That we're letting the mindfulness itself is not a cold or a dry or a distant mindfulness, but it's warm, it's kind, it's respectful. And then I really appreciated what she said about respect, meaning to look back or look again because that's an inherent quality of mindfulness is that when mindfulness is functioning it doesn't take anything for granted it doesn't assume we know it doesn't assume that we know what a breath is or what a body is or what an emotion is or what a feeling is, or what a mental state is, or what a thought is. We don't assume, and by that I mean, we don't, we don't pretend we don't know what those things are. Of course we know, this my body's sitting here, I'm having an emotion or feeling, or a thought. But we don't let the conceptualization veil, or get in the way of, or block the direct experience in the moment. Mm. 
So we're willing to look again with, as it said in the text, eyes unclouded by longing. Meaning that when we begin to find some freedom, that our eyes, our, our mind, our um, awareness, our attention uh, has a freshness to it and a liveness to it that is willing to look at each moment in its actuality rather than through the lens of our history and our beliefs and our ideas and our concepts and what we know and what we've known. And so that even if we have the same uh, uh, so-called experience, like we're angry and we've been angry 50 times on the retreat, we're willing to experience this anger fresh this time, not clouded by, not um, uh, veiled by how it was the last time or the 20th time before. And so mindfulness doesn't, it's respectful because it doesn't take anything for granted. Tonight, I'd like to continue our investigation of this freshness of reality, of the immediacy of reality, of the intimacy with reality. And um, begin to look at some of the uh, terrain that the Dharma takes us. That as we begin practice, we end up on a path. And if we think we know where the path is going, like it said in the Satipatthana Sutta, it's a direct path and it leads to, you know, the freedom or release from sorrow and lamentation and all this good stuff, all the way to Nibbana, right? So we have an, our, our idea about where it's going, but do we really know what that is or what that is supposed to be like? Or do, are we overlaying our ideas about what freedom from sorrow or grief or lamentation is? Are we adding some picture from some book or some memory or some idea onto what Nibbana or Nirvana is? Or are we beginning to open to the immediacy that is totally fresh, totally open, and in fact, in many ways, uh, uh, unknown. And one of the other pieces that we've been uh, encouraging is the inclusivity of our experience as as the path. And one of, there's a very famous uh, Zen poem from a woman, Shikibu Izumi, who lived a couple centuries ago. She said, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Watching the moon, and the moon is, is a symbol of enlightenment in Japanese Zen. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. 
And this is part of the spirit of this respect and freshness to see what's actually here. And I, I, I believe from what I've seen today that a lot of people have been having a taste of themselves, of their experience, that's quite fresh. It's quite new. There's the path, the practice. There's a tremendous amount of paradox in Dharma practice. Like when I think of where does the path go, one of the places it goes is into the, to the valley of paradox. You know, other religions, they go through the valley of death. We go through the valley of paradox. Death comes a little later in the Buddhist path. But there's a kind of paradox that we begin to engage in our practice or begins to show itself in our practice. And it was coming up today. People were coming in and feeling shaky or feeling tender or feeling weepy and not sure why or feeling anxious or feeling untogether. And of course, as a Dharma teacher, I'm going, oh, good, good. Oh, that's good. Oh, great. You know, and people look at me like, you know, am I a sadist or what? What's wrong with you? It's not that. It's, oh, this is, this is what happens when you practice. Things get less solid. And, you know, there's a great old blues song. It, when everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? It's similar with nirvana, right? Everybody wants to get enlightened, but then when things start happening, they're like, oh, well, this isn't really what I wanted. I didn't really want this. No, I wanted that bliss and that, oh, I was going to be walking two feet off the ground for the rest of my life and I was going to be totally open and there would be no more problems. This shakiness, this weepiness, this tenderness, the anxiety, the sense of being uh, untogether, unsolid, unstructured, unfamiliar to ourselves. I didn't want that. That's not what I want. I want to get enlightened. I want to. I don't want to not know who's sitting here. That's not what I wanted. And it's actually very moving as you see the Dharma naturally, easily, you know, a few days of practice and things start to open. Things start to unfold or change or reveal themselves as we're here in this kind of amazingly, amazing place. Spirit Rock's Dharma centers are just amazing. You know, it's beautiful. It's, you know, kind of as safe as it gets in the world of, the world that we live in. And it, it allows us, it allows a certain kind of, um, defendedness that we may not even notice that we have to start to soften. We're not, we don't keep it together in the same way anymore. It starts to lose its grip or the usual way that we 
fend off reality starts to lose its solidity. And it's powerful. And again, sometimes it's, it, and it's paradoxical. Because some people also were saying, were weeping and saying, oh, this is good. This is really, I'm so glad this is happening. This is, this is the paradox of the joy of suffering. Right? <laughs> I once saw it. Somebody gave a Dharma talk called The Joy of Suffering. I thought, oh yeah, that, that's a great advertisement, right? <laughs> You'll bring a lot of people in with that. <laughs> but it's true. There's a certain... One of the things that happens as we start to get present, we start to collect and compose and, and center ourselves with the body and the breathing. And then we start to open to more the totality of our experience of feelings and thoughts and emotions and moods and mental states and our reactivity. And we're not trying to just breathe it away, but actually we're using the breath and the body and the concentration and the composure we've developed to be present with it. There's an odd pleasure in learning the art, in realizing the art of being with things that are difficult, that with things that are painful, with a grief that we've never been able to allow, or just the ordinary hardening of the heart that happens in our life. And so people will come in and, and feel and be and be weeping but the, it's good and they know it's I know it's good but then they start to know that it's good and it's a paradox the mind it doesn't make sense really in the mind but in the heart the heart knows the heart understands oh yeah uh, this is good because the heart knows that its nature is unconstricted ultimately Really, it's true of the mind, too, that ultimately the mind is totally open. And part of the call of the path is a call to ourselves in this way, to see what are we if we're not held, if we're not bound, if we're not contracted, if we're not reactive, ultimately. What is that experience of ourself uh, unveiled, And part of why, what I wanted, why I wanted to begin to talk about paradox and include that is because of what came up in, the, in the, one of the questions in the metta meditation yesterday where somebody said, well, you know, we're, we're talking about my suffering and my pain and doing metta for my, you know, hurt or my whatever it is. And it's, you know, may I be happy and may I be peaceful, may I be. Are we just, are we just reifying the sense of self? Are we just concretizing that? And isn't Buddhism about no self or not self? And so I think this is a really rich area that we're starting to enter, which is the area of uh, more self and no self at the same time. And that's a part of the, what I would like to speak to. And it, it's um, uh, one very simple poem that describes it is from um, I th I'm not even sure. Either it's from Isa or Basho. Maybe somebody knows. 
who, who remembers, who said, the world of do, D-E-W, the world of do is just the world of do, and yet, and yet. And he wrote this after his young daughter died. The world of do, the, the ordinary world, the relative world, the world of do is just the world of do, and yet, and yet. This is related to the question of self and not self. The question of relative reality and what's talked about in Buddhism as ultimate reality. The, the teachings, the paradox of form and emptiness. It's an amazing poem he wrote. The world of do is just the world of do, and yet. And so it's true, there's this relative world that we live in. This relative world of, you know, our lives. And the, and the uh, relative world is sometimes talked about as this dreamlike reality. And we live in a world where I'm here and you're there and there's sep the world of separation and the world of, you know, uh, um, that's not the world of interconnectedness or not the world that's considered, uh, um, uh, it's not the emptiness, it's the thingness of the world. The world of being a human being and is our practice to transcend that? That, that becomes one of the questions. Is, that, is emptiness our goal? And then what is emptiness? And what does that mean? And what's the impact of emptiness? And so we enter into a realm that's not only paradoxical, but mysterious. One of, the, one of my favorite quotes from the Lankavatara Sutta, Sutra says, things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. Things are not what they seem. This relative world, which we often take at face value, when we begin to look deeper, is not, it's not so solid. It's not so opaque. It's actually totally radiant. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. But there's also the everyday, the normal. Like, you know, get up and eat your breakfast and go to work and come home. And what, is it, what does that have to do with transcendence, with emptiness? What does the self have to do with the teachings that the Buddha talked about as not-self? So, few ways we can consider this, we can think about this. Um, the Buddha, first important piece to know, that the Buddha never said directly, there's no self. That's very important to know, at least in the Pali Canon, in the teachings that form the basis of the Theravada tradition. 
He never said that. He, he talked about often, he pointed people, well, well, here's what happened. Guy came, asked him the question, is there a self? He won't answer. He said, well, is there no self? He won't answer. Well, is there neither self nor, nor is there neither self nor no self? He won't answer. Is there both self and no self? He won't answer. Really good teacher, right? Then one answer the guy. The guy left. And Ananda, who's his attendant and foil in the in the stories, says, well, why didn't you answer him? He said, if I would have answered, it would have been too confusing. I didn't want to confuse him. If I would have said there's a self, he would have thought there's a permanent self. If I would have th- said there's no self, then he would have been thought everything's nihilistic. That, that wouldn't have been skillful. In his teachings, what he points people as is, it points us to, is to look and see what are we taking to be self. That's the valuable question. The question is, is there a self or is there not a self? That He didn't think that was such a valuable question. He's saying, oh, what do we take to be a self? Do we take body to be a self? Do we take feelings to be the self? Do we take the mind to be the self? Do we take the thoughts to be the self? You know, what is it we take to be the self? So there's that, and that's, that, that leads to the teaching of what's not self. Well, the body's not actually the self, right? It's this thing, it's impermanent, it's here. You can look, look, see if you can find yourself in the body. Where, where are you? How many people think they're their toenails? Or your bladder, is that you? Or your, you know, shin bone? Or your kidney, is that you? I mean, just this is a very common, simple Buddhist contemplation. No, these are all parts of the body, right? And they're all the components that make up a body that we end up referring to conventionally as my body. And we definitely have a certain relationship to it, but is it, is it our self? Is that what our self is? Is just the body? Or is our self our feelings? Right? Which feelings? The ones you had two years ago? Is that yourself? Or the ones that you had yesterday, is that yourself? But we speak conventionally, oh yeah, they're my feelings, you know, in the moment. But is that myself? Or the thoughts, is that who you are? Because a lot of us think, you know, this is where we come from the Western tradition. I think, therefore I am. Right, that's a very Western understanding. It's not an Eastern understanding. In fact, Sri Aurobindo, when, his te- when he f- was first practicing, he was a, a, a Vedic practitioner, yogic practitioner, he, uh, he asked his teacher, what should he do? And his teacher said, well, sit down and watch the thoughts and see that they come from outside of you. 
right? That's a whole different understanding about thought. We think they come from inside of us. We th and, and often we think we are our thoughts. But what, is that true? Is that our self? If, if it's our self, can we hold on to them? Can we keep them? Can we put them in the bank? Can we invest them? What, where, where do they go? How many thoughts did you have yesterday? Anybody want to guess? <laughs> Ten? Thousand? I mean, 10,000? Where, where are they? If that's who we are. So I'm, I'm playing a little off of what Pam was talking about last night with the three characteristics, the impermanence and the not-self. Because if it's impermanent, how could it be who we are? Because when we're talking about itself, we're talking about something permanent, something fixed. So, um, and here's the other piece. The Buddha, a lot of the Buddhist teachings are about cultivating a really mature sense of self. What do we make of that? In other words, the teachings are the precepts are teachings that support a healthy sense of self and a healthy relationship with others. Very, very uh, oriented towards the idea that we're here and there's others here and we need to relate in a certain kind of way. Or we're here and we need to relate to ourselves in a helpful, healthy, supportive way as part of the path to awakening. And even the meditative process, the encouragement to meditate, um, one, uh, one of the encouragements is to discover the nutritiousness of meditation practice. That it supports our sense of well-being to learn how to be here and that we can be with what's difficult as human, be as human beings and that we can be with what's um, rich, in our own being, like the goodness that comes or the pleasure or the bliss that comes or the sense of well-being that comes just sitting here. And so one way you could consider this is that the Buddha understood and taught about relative reality and ultimate reality. And this is the teaching in Buddhism of the two truths. Two truths is that there is a self, the self is relative, it's not ultimate, ultimately it's all empty. Even the self is a construct. It's a relative construct. It arises for a while and then disappears. And actually it arises in each moment and changes in each moment. That's more accurate. Mostly we can see it over a lifetime, you know. Or we can see different stages, how they appear and disappear, how we call that ourself when we're there. But I know one of the great things when my dad died, who was 92, and, and he was, he'd had it, he was tired, he was like, I'm done, you know, 92. It's not that great sometimes at 92. You know, his body, it wasn't even that bad, but, you know, everybody had gone, all his, you know, my mom had died earlier, and his 
friends had died and you know he was just like I'm ready to go so it was like not a, this is like as good as it gets in human life right you live a long life and you're ready to go it's it's fine and so you know he died but for me the last you know especially the last 10 years or so he'd been old and I and I it was so liberating to see his body when he died because I realized oh that's not him that's his body and and it also cracked this image I was holding of him as an old man oh that was just one image in my life of him there were all these other images of him of who he was as a you know as a you know a hard worker and as a dad and as playful and as heartfelt and as young and as energy or not energy but then the last one had kind of stuck you know he's an old man it was like he's not an old man anymore it was it was great i hope you can understand that it's not it was really the the feeling was very liberating oh great he's not an old man anymore and i and really it was my letting go of that whole fixation but we fixate that's that's the what's tricky about the relative world is we fixate we try to fixate reality or solidify this totally uh, hourglass of sand reality that we are and that we're living and it's that's not a bad thing it's not a horrible thing but it's just good to see oh that's relative reality that's how relative reality is things appear but actually there's not much here it's all empty and sometimes people get really upset when I say that. So I'm going to try to ward this off here. Here's the deal. It's all empty. But you don't have to get upset about it. It's always been empty. It, it hasn't really changed. I'm just saying it's empty. <laughs> it, emptiness is just, it's a, it's a quality of reality. Just like water is wet. Reality has no solidity to it whatsoever. It's totally impermanent. It's never been any other way but this. It will never be any other way, but totally ephemeral. And it's part of what's beautiful. That's why, that's why uh, uh, I think it's Isa said, and yet, the world of dew, which is this ephemeral world, is just the world of dew. And yet, and yet, and yet everything is here in the emptiness. Even to say in the emptiness is bad teaching. I'll, I'll just acknowledge that. It is. Because it's not like, oh, it's in, no, everything is empty. And everything is here at the same time. And this is the paradox of what's talked about in Zen is form is emptiness, emptiness is form. They're not separate. And it makes human life, when we really start to get a taste of the ephemeral and transparent nature of reality, this paradox of that things are here and we can't hold on to anything, it's very poignant. It's very beautiful. It makes things more beautiful. 
this, these flowers. I, you know, I like the Buddhas, but they're a little stiff. You know, they're nice. But these flowers, that's what I've been bowing to this week, really. Especially this one. This is mine. Because <laughs> it's kind of aimed towards where I'm sitting. And, and it just keeps opening. It keeps opening. And this flower is dying at the same time. It's totally empty and yet manifesting this radiant beauty. And, and it's exactly what each of us is doing. Right? We're here in this mysterious, magical way. Things are just, things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. There's this, we're here. You know, come on, we're here. <laughs> and yet, what the hell is going on? Really? It's a mystery here. And the two truths points us at this mystery. It's one way that it's talked about in Buddhism. Here's a, here's a poem from Nagarjuna who articulated the two truths. He said, and this is um, Stephen Batchelor translation, the Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths. Partial truths of the world the relative truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, one cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths. Partial truths of the world, relative truth. I'm here, you're here, we're here, we live, we die. That's the relative truth. And truths which are sublime. Truth which is transcendent. Truth which sees that, oh no, we were never born and will never die. That's not exactly the deep. The deepest truth is not we're born and will die there's a deeper truth or an, or an ultimate truth. Let me put it that way. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on convention, without relying on relative reality, here, body, I'm here, Eugene, the Eugene-ness of what's here, without relying on convention, you cannot disclose the sublime. The sublime reveals itself in Eugene, or in Meg, or in Lori, or in John, or in Ivan, or in char Charisma, or whoever you, this, this relative reality in Anushka, this is where the ultimate reveals itself. Nowhere else. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. And that intuiting, part of what happens here is we start to find something to rely on our, that we could call intuition or we could call understanding 
what we could call the sublime, we find that by staying present in the moment, in the mystery of the present moment, in the magic of the, this moment, in the freshness of reality. And it's why we, we, our, our path points us there and takes us to here, not to there, to here. And sometimes they use some words that I like in the Tibetan tradition. They talk about uh, naked reality. Or uh, naked, there's another word they use. I have it somewhere. Maybe I'll find it. Don't know where it is. But the naked reality, or uh, another way they talk about it is primordial reality. And that what we're doing by gathering ourselves by collecting ourselves, by orienting into the present moment, is letting this primordial, primordial reality begin to reveal itself. Again, the language is a little limited. Through us, as us, that is what we are. It's in the absolute freshness of, of it's only found here. It's never found in the past or future. It's only found here. And so one of the, one of the mysteries that we begin to discover as we practice being present is how um, limitless is the reality of the present moment. How limitless it is. And that it's limited by our ideas that it's limited and our habit of mind and our kind of trance-like way we go through reality. And mindfulness is here both to be mindful of the trance and then mindful of what happens when that trance starts to lose its grab, lose its hold. And then as Aldous Huxley said, he said, then the doors of perception can open. Of course, he said it after you took LSD, but but it can happen here with you know without the exact same come down. So, as we practice, as we practice looking at what what it what's here, um, we want to be respectful. As we investigate, we want to be respectful of both the relative and ultimate reality of these two truths. And, and I really love this. In Zen, they say there's relative reality and ultimate reality. Now listen to this, they say, and both are equally true. And that, that's a very important understanding because we hear relative and ultimate and we say, oh, ultimate's what's really true. But they're saying, no, relative and ultimate, they are equally true. And it's really what he's saying here. He said, without relying on conventions, you cannot know the sublime. You need them both. Relative reality is where ultimate reality is revealed. You have to have both. 
And then when we begin to understand that we study the relative, our body, our breath, our feelings, our emotions, our reactions, our mind, our thoughts, the whole construct of what's here, we study that in order to illuminate what else is here that we haven't been seeing or we haven't seen or we've lost touch with, but we intuit, we have a feeling for, we know there's more. Whether you call it the the heart of the Buddha or liberation or wholeness or healing or God, whatever you want to call it, whatever language speaks to your heart, we, we know there's more. Freedom, whatever that word might be for you. And then to begin to allow the ultimate to manifest through the relative. And that's why Izumi Shikibu can say, no part left out. No part left out. We're not transcending to get away from. We're going right through relative reality and it reveals the ultimate. And so a couple of the pitfalls in this terrain. One of the pitfalls is that we idealize ultimate reality. We idealize transcendence over manifestation. And it's easy to do because it's harder to uh, um, uh, actualize realization in the day-to-day life. And so like to come on retreat and then have a really deep or transcendent experience, we think, oh, it's at Spirit Rock. That's where it is. Because it's not so easy to, we're not always in touch in daily life with the numinous in the same way. And we, and our minds split things. So we think daily life is different from here. There's, I don't, I was going to write this down, but I think I can remember it's, uh, when I first practiced Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. And when I continued to practice Zen, mountains were not mountains and rivers were not rivers. But then when I realized Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. That's good practice, right? It's true, we see the Mountains aren't mountains, right? Rivers aren't rivers. But then we also see, oh, they are. Both are true. Both are true. Mountains and rivers are concepts and ideas that we overlay on these, this phantasmagorical, you know, things that we call water and movement and life and plants and mountains and things, shapes, right? But they're mountains and they're rivers. You can, we, they're both true. The other side of the pitfall is we want to push away the relative. And so what will happen in Dharma practice is people start thinking the sense of self is bad or wrong or mistake or it shouldn't be here because we should be selfless. But I would posit to you that that might not be how, how things are. That there's a relative sense of self that may not need to obscure the not-self nature of reality. That the relative sense of self has its place. It's a, a good organizing principle. Eugene goes home to Eugene's house. 
and he knows who his wife is, right? This is relative knowledge, and it's important. If you don't know that, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> We're having some technical difficulty now. How's that? This is also relative reality. I mean, if we get, if we're just transcendent, then the talk you won't hear the talk. So what happens is we'll deny not only the one of the things that gets denigrated or judged is not just the self, but even the the story. Right? Like, you know, we see that the, the mind makes up a lot of stories. But the stories can be used to be mindful of the thought, story, narrative, feeling, tone, experience that's here right now with the body. So, I don't know, I wasn't in the instructions, but one of the good things to do when you have a narrative that's repeating you know, I don't, I'm pissed at this person and why are they doing this? And, oh, I should have said that. And I'm going to tell them when I get off retreat and now that I'm enlightened, they should really believe me. And, you know, there's a whole affective world happening. It's not just an abstract story. Usually if it's abstract, it's really easy to let go of. But if it's not, if it's got some grab to it, then we want to be mindful. It can act, even the story can help us be present to see, oh, I'm angry in this story. What, what's happening here now? Oh, I'm angry. And feel it in our body and feel the whole affective piece of what we're calling a story. And so it's all, it's all good. It's not bad. We don't have to just push away. Uh, Anushka was saying aversion to aversion is aversion. She was right. <laughs> it's aversion. And we don't want to be aversive. We don't want, when we're, when we're, the teaching of no part left out means, oh, we don't even have to be afraid of our thoughts or our feelings or anything that's here. This is from one of the great um, Zen teachings that's very paradoxical. It's very paradoxical. And it goes, um, they say, if you wish to move in the one way, Do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. And this is a teaching that's called the Shin Shin Ming. Uh, um, uh, 
verses from the faith mind or the mind of absolute trust. And it's just that, it's a, it's a beautiful title. Just imagine, what would it be like if your mind had absolute trust? Like absolute trust in yourself, in your experience. Like absolute trust. And it begins, the Shin Shin Ming begins, very famous line, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preference. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preference. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful understanding. The whole Dharma is right, right in that line. You can, you can walk away now. You got your money's worth. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preference. But you hear it's paradoxical, right? Who doesn't have preference? Right? Anybody here not have any preferences? So this is important to hear in the Dharma that you have to hear beyond the poetry at times. Because the same guy who translated it this way translated it again 25 or 30 years later, 30 more years of practice, and he did it less poetically, but more accurately. He said, the great way is not difficult for those who who are not attached to their preferences. Right, And that's the spirit of the teaching. But the poetry is... The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. So trusting our experience means we don't actually have to do much. We just want to get present. We just want to get here and then trust what comes. And it's paradoxical because it means trusting our weeping. Trusting our fear, trusting our pain, trusting our boredom, trusting our calm, trusting our joy, trusting our pleasure, trusting our concentration, trusting it all. No no part left out. Here's a great example from uh, um, Norman Fisher, who's a Zen teacher here in the Bay Area, a good friend. He said, my teacher used to say, trust yourself, trust yourself absolutely. And this practice rang very true for me, and so I took it to heart and tried to live my life that way. But it's pretty hard because, he found it pretty hard because the more I really tried to stake everything on myself, the more I could see myself about as solid as smoke the more I confused I got. If I tried to trust my opinions absolutely, I could see how they shifted day to day based on what I was reading or who I was talking to or what my experience had been lately. If I tried to trust my basic ideas about who I was, I could immediately see they were just ideas. They They could not support the weight of my whole trust. They were too flimsy. So I was pretty mixed up. And then it dawned on me, he had an insight, then it dawned on me that I had been misunderstanding the message. It was not to trust myself as self, but to trust my experience as it arose. To trust my experience as it arose, moment by moment. And my experience consisted not only of what was inside my head, thoughts and feelings and emotions, but also many other things. When I saw clouds, clouds were my experience. 
When I heard a bird, the song was my experience. When someone told me I was a jerk, that was my experience. Not something coming from someplace else to be defined out and defended against. So in this way, I worked very hard at trusting my experience absolutely, even my mixed up thinking. Right to the end, staying with it, not glancing off, and finally, I could find always at the end of my experience, whether I liked the experience or not, a sky-like mind in which every experience was very broad and deep. And so he's pointing to where mindfulness begins to take us. In this trusting of our experience, in this learning, training to be with, we start to see that every experience is arising. Every experience sustains for a moment or a while and then passes, changes. And there is this knowing in which everything appears and disappears magically, mysteriously. It appears for a moment, our pain, or or it stays for an hour or a day, and then it, it disappears. The sensations arise, they're strong, they're pleasant or unpleasant, and then they change. And it's all being known. It's all being known in this sky-like nature of mind, the nature of awareness itself. And from this perspective, there's nothing to get rid of. There's nothing to fix, actually. There's nothing to do or become. And then there are the dishes and the laundry and the relationship and the children and the parents and the community and politics. And then there's responding from the presence that we cultivate so that these two truths both live. They live together. So sometimes in in Zen, they they change it again. They like to always pull the rug out in Zen. They say, not one, not two. There's not even, there's not one truth and there's not two truths. Neither. So that you don't fix or solidify anywhere. I'll end with an email, a good friend of mine, Ginny Morgan, who is uh, one of the founders and leaders of Mid-America Dharma. Her her little sangha within Mid-America Dharma is a big umbrella group in the Midwest. Her little sangha in Missouri is called Show Me Dharma. (laughs) And Ginny was on a retreat I was teaching in the Midwest, and she brought her friend, whose name was Ram Jyoti. Ram Jyoti was a, a yogic tra- practitioner, Hindu practitioner who came to Buddhist retreat, and, and uh, it was a it was a certain kind of retreat. Like when I got there, uh, there was this storm. Uh, it was winter, and it was a Midwest storm, and the snow was blowing sideways. You, you know, you know, it's really bad when the snow is going sideways. 
And, um, and she wrote after they got home, she said, Dear Eugene, Ram Jyoti and I got stuck in a long line of traffic on Highway 71, revisited. We waited, that's a private joke for people of a certain age. We, we waited patiently while a snowdrift the size of an 18-wheeler was cleared off the road. What was lovely and quietly appreciated by both of us was that even though we knew Ram Jyoti would miss her plane, it was all just fine. On the road to the airport, after the drift was clear, the car hit a patch of ice in the road, and in a long, quiet moment, it began to turn sideways. I said, shit. <laughs> Ram Jyoti said, Ram. We both used the same tone of voice. There is no side of the duality that is better than the other. The car righted itself, and we went on. We are truly just drops of dew trembling on the tip of a leaf. Let's sit for a minute, please. of dew is just the world of dew and yet and yet for your kind attention. We have about a half an hour for walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.